Hello and welcome to Vaccine 15, a weekly mini-series covering key topics about vaccines in 15 minutes or less, hosted by Biopod here at the University of Edinburgh. Today's episode is all about COVID variants, specifically how we can improvise, adapt and overcome these new threats to our existing vaccine programmes. To discuss this, we have Dr Thomas Christie Williams, paediatrician and research in evolutionary genetics who has been tracking COVID since the start of this pandemic. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Williams. Thank you very much for having me. Nice to be here. Uh, it is a lovely uh, grey day in Edinburgh, so most likely when you're listening it's that as well. Okay, so what is a variant and how does it happen? Okay, sure. So COVID is a, a virus and viruses are these odd entities that we're not really sure whether they're alive or not. If they've got genetic information, they don't really use that genetic information themselves to make more viruses. They co-opt human cells, in the case of human viruses. And there's different kinds of virus in terms of how that genetic information is encoded. But COVID is an RNA virus, and so all the information it gains is encoded in RNA. RNA is what human cells use to carry instructions from the nucleus to make proteins. So what the virus does is just co-opt that process and, um, and directly provides its own RNA to human cells that make the proteins that it needs to make more viruses and then your cells make more virus and then they spread in COVID by um, by coughing and, and and contact. So so from a viral point of view, humans are just a very effective way to make more viruses. Um, so we know a lot about the COVID genome because we've studied it so intensively. It's about 30,000 um, RNA bases long. And when we talk about variants, it's, it's kind of not a particularly well-defined idea because it's not really like a species in biological terms where you can define a species as being a, a class of animal or plant that can breed with another. So the only way we can distinguish them is to, to look at the genetic differences between them and see whether match to the genetic differences is also different in how the virus behaves. And what distinguishes different COVID viruses from each other is just the sequence of RNA bases. How exactly we define a variant is up for debate, and no, no one's really agreed yet on how to do that. But essentially, I think if you compare two COVID viruses, identify say if you compare the one we found in Wuhan back in um, in December, and compare it to the different viruses around the world now, some of those different viruses are so different that we can probably call them a variant. That they're, they're different to the original variant, behave in a different way, and therefore we're going to call them a different variant. An easy way to think about them is to use a shorthand of where they were first identified. In general, but the virus or people try to move away from that. It kind of can be quite discriminatory. So um, things like Ebola is named after Ebola, where it was first found, but it's such a horrible disease that people associate the place with the disease. So in general, we've tried to move away from um, tagging a location to the virus, but it seems to have stuck. So we have the Kent variant, the South African variant, the Brazil variant, the Indian variant. But actually, it's probably better to refer to them by their names. The problem is that there's not a standardized name to use to refer to them. But the most widely accepted system so far was in fact developed in Edinburgh by a very um, bright PhD student, in fact, called Onyo Tool. She, she worked to create classification to think about the viruses in a logical way. And, and that system is called the Pangolin system. And that has a A or a B group. All the original viruses were A's and then became B's became more common. And then um, the current one in the UK is the B117 variant, which most people have heard of. And then these other variants are classified in a similar way. So the South African variant we call B1351. The Brazil variant is called P1 because it's an add-on to the 
previous ones found in Brazil. And then this Indian variant that we're thinking about now is B1617. And, and they, they're just defined by creating a phylogenetic tree, a tree of the relationship ancestral relationship with viruses, and then subdividing on the basis of different mutations. I think at the start of the pandemic, I, I've worked in other RNA viruses, RSV, respiratory sensitive virus. And I don't think people thought that you could develop enough diversity to lead to difference in behavior between the different variants in such a short time. But COVID has infected so many people, probably hundreds of millions. It's just had a chance to replicate lots of times. And then what introduces variation into the virus is, um, it is faulty copying of the virus. It's just had a lot of opportunities to mutate. And some of those mutations we now know actually do change its behavior. Okay, so the more people it infects or passes on to, the more it has a chance to create variations or variants. Exactly, yeah. It's um, it's just the it's just the replication that introduces the errors. It's actually less error prone than um, a lot of RNA viruses. It's polymerase, which creates new copies of the virus, has a, a proofreading mechanism which a lot of RNA viruses don't have. But despite that, because there's been so much of it, it's had a multitude of opportunities to um to create variation. So by continually making errors, it somehow improves itself. That's oddly related. Uh, that, that, that's the key to Darwinian selection, isn't it? You've got the factors of mutation, selection and drift. And, the, and then it's a balance between how many mutations you generate and, and the chance of having a good one versus the risk of having um, errors that will affect your, your fitness. Okay, so we have all these variants. Do the vaccines we have right now, the broad scope of them, will they be able to handle these variants or will there be a point where they become ineffective? Yeah, so that's another interesting question. A year ago, a year and a half ago, I organised a meeting for vaccines for this other RNA virus, RSV, and people seemed pretty confident there. It was a group of people from around the world, experts in the field, been working on this particular virus for 20, 30 years. It's a similar virus. It's a respiratory virus that causes disease in kids rather than adults. And the consensus there was that if you had a good vaccine, there was just no way that, that any amount of variability in the virus could affect the vaccine. So when you when you create a vaccine, you, you present the body with a copy of the pathogen you want to prevent being infected with. And for the, the COVID vaccines, they tend to present this spike protein. Um, spikes one of the viral proteins and it allows the virus to bind to human cells. Um, it's also the main target for an antibody response. And the assumption a year and a half ago, and that most people had to, to probably till December or January this year, was that you've got a whole protein to, to bind antibodies to. Your antibodies are going to bind to that protein in many of its different aspects. It's got a polyclonal response. And therefore, one or two mutations in the spike protein are not going to affect the vast majority of, um, of antibodies. So even if you lost binding of a couple of antibody types, then you'd have dozens or hundreds of others left to protect you. What became clear, though, was that actually the, the repertoire, the number of antibodies that we build to spike is quite limited, and it's focused on um, two particular parts of the protein. And actually, mutations in those two particular parts make the, vaccine, the antibody binding less effective. So it's clear that some of these variants evade the immune response to previous variants. So the, all the vaccines are predicated on the Wuhan variant, which was found in December last year. Um, and so if you get a vaccine, spike protein is a Wuhan spike protein. The antibodies you build are to the Wuhan spike protein. If you're then infected, though, with, say, the South African variant, B1351, it's got a couple of mutations in that spike protein. Actually, antibodies aren't 
particularly effective. So for the um, AstraZeneca vaccine, even if you'd had the AstraZeneca vaccine and had antibodies to that Wuhan protein, it didn't really protect you against um, being infected with that new variant. So you mentioned previously on one of our previous episodes like about making uh, building block vaccines, things you can just slot together so you can build a vaccine quickly. Because we have the vaccine for the Wuhan variant. So why can't we make a vaccine for everything? That's the better the question. Oh, we can, we can, we can. It's been done. So people have already done trials in the um, using that South African variant sequence and giving a vaccine with that sequence to volunteers. It can happen really quickly, like six weeks, two months. Six weeks? Um, yeah, really, wow. really quick. Um, and the the... We haven't gone into how the vaccines work. You probably did that in the previous podcast, but the, the RNA virus, you're just supplying a, a string of genetic codes to put into your vaccines. You're, you're printing that off and sticking it in, your, in these lipid nanoparticles. So it's just a function of how quickly you can roll it out of the um, vaccine factory. And interestingly, if you build a response to the B1351 variant, that also protects you against previous ones. It doesn't seem to work both ways. It, it, having immunity to the previous one doesn't protect you from B1351, but actually immunity to B1351 protects you to that one and previous strains. So that, that's good. The other thing to say is I've talked a lot about antibodies, but the way in which vaccines is probably more complicated than just the antibodies, particularly in, in COVID. And what the vaccines do is protect you against being infected because your, your antibodies circulate and make it more or less likely that you will become infected with COVID. They're, they're a bit leaky, they're not perfect. So the AstraZeneca vaccine, for example, you can be vaccinated but still become infected with COVID. But then what seems to determine more, more severe outcomes, whether you become hospitalized or get into intensive care or die, is your T-cell response. Your T-cells are these cells that circulate in your body that provide immunity. And like antibodies, they learn how to recognize particular pathogens they work in a slightly different way uh, and it seems as if your t-cells that the repertoire of responses that that they can provide is much broader than your antibodies uh, and that seems to be preserved even for these different variants so there's been a few big vaccine trials in countries with these new variants and and even though people are getting infected with the variants it doesn't seem that it's leading to severe disease so i think we can be pretty pretty hopeful that even if we have a variant that arrives that the vaccine doesn't protect you against infection with, we can be pretty confident that it will still protect you against severe disease or dying. So, so the, the concern we have about variants at the moment is not that it's going to cause disease in those who are vaccinated, who are the highest risk group, but it's going to spread throughout our population despite there being vaccines. And therefore, those who are still unprotected, those under 40, are still going to get COVID. Where, where the, the burden of disease is pretty low, but equally, you wouldn't want every one under 40 in the UK to get COVID because it, it would just wreck, wreck our economy and schooling for, for the next few months. Um, but, but there's no evidence I've seen anywhere that, that your degree of protection provided by vaccine against death or severe disease is going to change based on these variants. However, we, we don't know that for sure. And, and the, the more time we let this virus mutate, the more time we risk having a variant that actually makes the vaccines less effective in, in terms of severe disease. Ah, excellent. So yeah, as the story of all these episodes is get vaccinated. So that's excellent. Yeah, um, yeah ab absolutely. <laughs> and and then also be aware that even if you're vaccinated, there's, there's two reasons to get vaccinated. Firstly, to not get sick yourself. And the secondly, to protect everyone else. Right now, you can't be sure that even if you're vaccinated, you will protect people, even if you're vaccinated. So, so you need, we need to be careful despite being vaccinated.
Excellent. Okay, so we've mentioned we can adapt our vaccines to do variants quite quickly. And we've also mentioned we're tracking them. Uh, so you mentioned Anya O'Toole, we mentioned Pangolin and how we've got labeling all the different variants. But how are we tracking new COVID variants? How do we notice when one appears? And what are we doing to make sure it's different from the last one? Yeah, so part of the problem with the, the geographical terms I was talking about before is that um, it's often a function of how much sequencing there is to track the variant rather than necessarily where it first emerged. Oh, so so the, the Kent variant may well have emerged elsewhere, but the UK does a lot of sequencing, so I think we were the first to find it in the UK. So the virus, the way you do it is sequence its genetic code. And so we, we take samples from patients and you extract the RNA and then you put it in a sequencer to see what the genetic code is. And then that allows you to work out whether it's different to previous ones or not. The UK has got massive sequencing infrastructure. They've invested big in sequencing. So I think there's some extraordinary number, many hundreds of thousands of viruses have been sequenced in the UK. So the UK is perfectly set to pick up on new variants because it's got lots of information on what's happening around the country. That's partly a function of being a country with very poor control of the virus and a very high degree of scientific investment in studying it. So other places like New Zealand, for example, have got a great scientific infrastructure, but they haven't got any virus to study. So we're kind of the world leaders, but for the most unfortunate of reasons. So yeah, so the sequencing tells us whether it's different. And then the trickier thing is to, is to try and work out whether the mutations mean anything. So for a lot of the start of the pandemic, there were all these mutations being picked up and we weren't really sure whether they had any consequences. And you need to have big studies, lots of participants, and you need to be able to link your sequence data to some other data, clinical data, data on how it's spreading. So for B117, for example, it took a couple of months to work out that it spread better than previous variants and it was actually more dangerous, that it caused more deaths. And the, the jury's still out a little bit on how much worse it is than previous variants. Uh, but what we can do is to look at how different viruses are spreading and whether one's growing more quickly than others. And I think if a, if a variant's growing more quickly than others, it suggests that it's more competitive within that niche and therefore it'd be one that we should look at further. So the this Indian variant that's been in the news, B16172, if you look across the world, it's growing really quickly, more quickly than other variants, which suggests that it's got some kind of competitive advantage. But the, the, we haven't got the, the detailed data we need to understand whether it's causing more severe disease or whether it is much more transmissible, but it does seem to be more transmissible. If you look at um, European countries, Indian countries, and you plot the percentage of different strains that are growing over time, it's taking off. It's, yeah, it's take, taking off big time. So I believe we've covered quite a lot today. So we've looked at what a COVID variant is, how our vaccines can be adapted to them, how our vaccine can be made broader scope, and how we track and notice when a new variant pops up. Thank you, Dr. Williams, for a broad yet insightful look into how to track COVID variants and adapt to our response to them. Great. So thank you very much. Thank you as well, dear listeners, and we'll see you next time. Don't forget to look us up online at Twitter at Biopod Edinburgh and subscribe to our podcast wherever you get them. Bye.